Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. From central China to northern Italy to Washington, it's all about the coronavirus. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back. In the beginning, the world took the coronavirus in stride. Sure, there'd be some hit to Chinese economic growth for a bit, but soon President Xi would have things back on track. We'd make sure any hit was limited to the first quarter and limited to China. But then this week, the virus broke through whatever firewalls we'd hoped for. So now the question is, how much death and destruction are we really looking at? How can we plan for a very different 2020 than the one we had expected? To help us assess the damage done and what may be yet to come, we convene now our Wall Street Week roundtable of James Tisch, CEO of Lowe's, running a business spanning hotels, energy, and financial institutions, and Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics for Bank of America Securities. Welcome, both of you. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Michelle, you're the economist. Let's start with you. Uh, Give us a sense of what we know and what we don't know about the scale of the economic damage thus far. I think a good place to start is to think about the direct hit to the global economy from the coronavirus. And that would largely be through supply chains. So the coronavirus clearly led to significant economic damage in China. Factories are shut down. That's now bleeding into other countries, Southeast Asia, you're seeing it also in Italy. So the fact that factories can't produce, the fact that you're not able to see the flow of goods through the global economy is clearly a damage. It's going to hit multinational companies, and you hear it in in, in, in earnings. You hear from from corporates already. The second way that the coronavirus impacts the economy, and this is what we got a taste of this week, is through fear. Hmm. And this is where it can get really problematic, is if you have this adverse feedback loop between consumer and business confidence and markets. 
um, where markets react ne- negatively as they have this week, that spurs additional concern on the part of consumers, and consumers change their behavior. They decide they're not going to go and take that trip. They're not going to go to restaurants. They're not going to go to movie theaters. Um, they're going to stay home. They're going to hunker down. And that could be a significant um, hit to economic performance. Luckily, we're not seeing that in full-blown by any means yet. But that is the risk factor, and that's what we're paying attention to. Jim, as a businessman, what, are you, what do you think about the supply chain issue? Before we get to the confidence issue, the supply chain issue, how long will it linger? How long could it linger? What kind of damage could that do? So as I think about this, It's like having a Category 6 hurricane a thousand miles offshore, off in the Atlantic Ocean, and we don't know for sure if it's going to hit the East Coast or if we don't know if it's going to blow out of the way. And so everybody now is panicked about what can happen. Generally, they assume the worst. Nobody knows for sure what's going to happen, and so there's just an enormous amount of uncertainty. And I think that's what's ungluing the markets. And I think that's why this topic is the only topic in the news. So we're in better shape going into this than we might have been, Michelle, because we did have some stimulus into the economy. And we've got some economic numbers even this week that are sort of yeah. indicating we're doing OK, at least domestically in the U.S. How much headwind how, and how much tailwind do we have? Yeah. So the hard data in the U.S., which is not going to yet pick up the coronavirus, has been strong. It's been good, right? The Labor market was improving. Consumers have been spending. The housing data has been really showing nice recovery. But that all can change quickly, right? So as economists, we have to look at forward-looking indicators. We have to rely on survey data. We have to rely on uh, what financial conditions are telling us. That's a much better indicator of what's to come. Now, of course, those can change rapidly, right? Um, So we have to be nimble in terms of how we're thinking about the outlook. Um, But it's going to take some time before we get confirmation one way or the other in the hard data. Are you seeing the economy is pretty strong right now, Jim? Yes, uh, definitely strong, and it's been strong for a long time. Mm. We're, we've got between 2 and 2.5% two and growth, real growth. So when you combine that with inflation, GDP is growing close to 5% nominally, uh, which is really pretty good. Unemployment is very low. Unemployment claims are low. The business environment is very good right now. At the same time, we pumped a fair amount of stimulus into the economy through tax cuts and things. Are you surprised it isn't even stronger than it is? No, not not really, because the unemployment numbers are so low. Uh, so I think uh, uh, the place where we're going to get uh, more real economic growth is through productivity gains. And I think we saw that last quarter, and I think we're going to see more and more of it going forward. You know, on productivity gains, do you think that there's been a change in how businesses are investing? Because presumably in order to get significant productivity gains, you need to have a greater willingness amongst the business community to invest. I mean, do you think that that's potentially a factor? Do you see that all specifically in your space? We see it in terms of our use in robotics, in our yeah. plastic manufacturing. We see it uh, in, in terms of just computer systems, in our insurance business. Uh, we're mm. seeing, you know, it's it's been 30 or 40 years that that we've had this IT revolution, and until a few years ago, we really didn't get much measured productivity yeah. from it. But now we're really, I think, we're really starting to see 
uh, great opportunities for productivity gains. At the same time, mm. the expensing of capital investment should have made it take off like a rocket ship, shouldn't it? It's really interesting, this disconnect that you see from what people say in the business community, on the ground, around IT and the ability for productivity to pick up and greater efficiency, because it feels like there's a lot more efficiency. But yet, in the aggregate numbers that we get reported in GDP, the productivity numbers have been so subpar. So maybe it is just a function of time. Maybe it's a function of, you know, the, the investment lasts long enough, the innovation continues, and you do realize this really impressive productivity boom, which is quite an optimistic story that people are not talking about, especially right now when there's so much fear out there um, in terms of the risks. We're all talking about coronavirus yeah. after all. Okay. Yeah. Our contributors will be staying with us. Coming up, the week that was in markets. This is Wall Street Week. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We convene now our Wall Street Week roundtable of James Tisch, CEO of Lowe's, and Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics for Bank of America Securities. Equity markets had a particularly rough week this week as risk investors headed for the hills, or at least for bonds and for gold. For our Wall Street Week interview on equities this week, we welcome Gina Martin-Adams. She's Bloomberg Chief Equity Strategist. Welcome, Gina. Good to have you here. Thank you. Great to be so here. So I must say, you and your team were sort of saying we're not totally shocked that equity yeah. sold off. Well, there were a lot of signs suggesting that we were headed for some period of weakness. Now, I don't think anybody could have predicted we were headed for a 10% crash. You did have a lot of rotation into very, very defensive strategies occur for the vast majority of this year. Utility stocks at the equity market peak were trading three standard deviations above their long-term average. Is a good example of that. Low volatility stocks dramatically outperforming high volatility stocks. These are kinds of symptoms that you look for for a market that is running on fumes. Momentum was running out. There were just a lot of signals suggesting we were due for some period of correction. We got it. It was interesting because for a while it seemed like there was this big disconnect between the bond market and the yep. equity market, which is presumably what you're speaking of. I mean, the, the bond market saw a dramatic decrease in interest rates. You're starting to see the flattening or even points of inversion of the yield curve, which are always indicative yep. of a gloomy outlook. But yet, for a while, the equity market held up quite resilient up yep. until this week. Yes. So what was the trigger? Why this week yeah. did you see such a dramatic repricing in the stock market? No, I think it's a great point because portions of the equity market absolutely reflected that sort of flight to quality in the bond mm. market. And the bond market signals were reflected in things like the utilities premium and the defensive share sort of outperformance. But not all of the equity market reflected it and created this bit of a conundrum. Mm. However, I think what happened in the equity market is this domino effect. You saw global stocks underperform dramatically in the prior, in the prior month. Yeah. That suggested to us that there was a rotation out of global shares and into U.S. shares as sort of a flight to quality. But I don't want to really eliminate all of my equity exposure because I don't know how bad coronavirus is going to be. Yeah. Right? So U.S. shares held up very, very well, especially Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, the biggest of the big cap shares with the, the best sort of perceived structural growth prospects, and then defensives. But what happened over the course of the last week is we got a lot more news that the coronavirus was spreading, right? All of a sudden, it's spreading to Japan. It's going to Italy. It's in South Korea. It's in the Middle East. That kind of information didn't exist two weeks ago. So investors started to capitulate on their overall equity portfolios. At the same time, you got those big names like Apple and Microsoft coming out and suggesting, hey, we're going to see some earnings damage from this, too, and investors had to capitulate on the near-term earnings outlook. I was going to say, there's, uh, I think a lot of this is due to the shock mm -hmm. that, oh, my God, 
coronavirus is coming to the United States, what's it, what's it going to do to earnings? As, as I look at stocks in general, though, they seem pretty cheap to me. We have 10-year notes at under a 130 yep. uh, yield, which, if you convert it into a P.E., is over 75, mm-hmm. and you have the stock market trading at 17 or 18 times earnings. So in, in the context of such low-term interest rates, yep. stocks seem to me a veritable bargain. And in fact, more than two-thirds of stocks trade at a higher yield than the 10-year note. Yep. So you can earn the same as the 10-year note and, hopefully get the appreciation that that you would expect to get in stocks. So I think they're actually a pretty good value here. I wouldn't disagree. As a matter of fact, we wrote a note just this week suggesting that with the capitulation that we've seen in the equity market this week, stocks are finally back to what our fair value models suggest they should trade at in terms of valuation multiples. The question going forward is, well, where will those earnings go? Because when you cite a 17 handle on S&P 500 PE, you're suggesting that, okay, we're paying for future earnings growth that is certain. If that earnings number comes down, suddenly that PE looks a little more expensive. And that's the situation we're in right now is sort of grappling with, yes, valuations right now look cheap, but we don't know where the denominator of that ratio is headed. And until we get a little bit more certainty with respect to where that denominator is headed or we get more support from policymakers suggesting there will be some firepower supporting the financial markets, stocks are likely to waffle around. But it does raise the question of the V versus the U versus yeah. the L pretty quickly. Because if it's a V, then that's a pretty good bargain. Yeah. If it's not, maybe not such a, good, such a good bargain. Yeah, and what we're finding is increasingly analysts are starting to price in more of a U, hopefully not an L. We haven't seen that occur yet, and that's certainly not our forecast. But the macro indicators that we follow would suggest S&P 500 earnings are likely to grow 2% this year. That's a a decline in Q1, followed by a modest bounce back through the rest of the year, finishing the year in more normalized condition. Uh, It's a macro model, so it doesn't fully capture all the nuances of every company in the S&P 500. Nonetheless, it does sort of fit with the analyst Uh, decrease in estimates that we're seeing across the board. What we've seen over the last month is analyst expectations for Q1 fall really quickly, but now they're starting to take out expectations for Q2 and a little bit of of the third quarter as well. And I think that forms more of a U-shaped recovery, which is frankly a little bit more realistic considering we just don't know how far this is going to spread. You brought up something important, which is the Federal Reserve. So markets have loved Federal Mm -hmm. Reserve easing. Um, There's the Powell put, as many like to talk about it. Um, So I think there's a question as uh, at what point does the Fed step in and support the markets and support the economy. But let's say the Fed does come in and ease at the next meeting, the March meeting. So they don't do an inter-meeting, they ease in the March meeting. Do you think markets are going to get much relief from that? Or are they concerned about the bigger picture, given how much uncertainty there is just simply about the coronavirus and how it might spread um, you know, I, I really loathe the words this time is different because yeah. I don't think this <laughs> yeah. time is different. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so you have to err on the side of history, right? And every time the Fed has started an easing cycle, the stock market has reacted. Sure. So you have to acknowledge that even though the Fed is usually easing in times of great uncertainty when we don't know where the economic environment is going to go and we're really skeptical as to whether that policy has any efficacy in creating economic growth going forward, the market always reacts. The reason the market always reacts goes back to valuations. 
the way the Fed implement the way the Fed actually impacts the equity market is through real interest rates, mm-hmm. and it's through the PE multiple, mm-hmm. less so than through earnings growth. Uh, yes, eventually you're hopefully going to see some pickup in business investments, some pickup in earnings growth that follows along with, you know, the anticipation that comes after the Fed starts to reduce the policy rate. But the initial reaction in the equity market is all about the multiple. It's all about the fact that rates are now lower and perceived to be going lower, which elevates multiples and the, the willingness of investors to take on a little bit of risk. Thanks so much to Jim Tush, Michelle Meyer, and, of course, Gina Martin-Adams of Bloomberg Intelligence. We'll be back with our contributors. Head to Bloomberg.com for more exclusive thoughts from our weekly contributors, along with full episodes and the official Bloomberg Wall Street Week podcast. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. In case of emergency, break glass. Glass, that is, that will trigger the alarm calling for lower interest rates from the Federal Reserve. That's been the standard play at least since the great financial crisis of 2008. But this time, central bankers are taking a wait-and-see attitude, as we heard from Fed Vice Chair Rich Clarida just this week. We are closely monitoring the emergence of the coronavirus, which is likely to have a noticeable impact on Chinese growth, at least in the first quarter of this year. The disruptions there could spill over to the rest of the global economy, but it is still too soon to even speculate about either the size or the persistence of these effects. But even if central banks decide to step up in the face of the virus, are we sure it will work this time? Will lower interest rates do anything about a potential pandemic? Let's ask our Wall Street Week roundtable of Michelle Meyer of Bank of America and James Tisch, CEO of Lowe's. So I'll ask you first, Michelle. We've seen lower interest rates help in various ways. Mm -hmm. Would they help this problem? Well, this is a supply shock. Um, so monetary policy has a hard time addressing supply shocks. They do a whole lot better when it's a demand shock, when it's a demand inefficiency. Um, the other major challenge, of course, is that it's a, a virus that is, could or could not spread quickly. Um, it, you know, it could change behavior or, or not. I mean, the reality is, is that we don't know. Central bankers don't know. Um, that said, what central bankers do know and what they are looking at very carefully is what markets are telling them. 
And that's a really important piece of data for them. It's early indications that there's something problematic um, and certainly something that's worrying market investor, market participants. Um, so I think from the Fed's point of view, a rate cut is on the table. It is on the table because financial conditions are deteriorated. If they see credit freezing up, if they see, um, you know, further sell-off in the market, further increase in volatility, um, further inversion of the yield curve, and if the bond market starts to really pressure the Fed to move, more likely than not, they will deliver, even if they don't see the hard evidence in the economy. So, Jim, if the Fed pays attention to the markets, one of the things the market's telling right now is they should cut rates. If you look at the Fed, the markets, they're saying they're expecting maybe three rate cuts this mm. week, this year. That's true. Uh, I think what, what the stock market and the bond market is telling you is that uh, they're afraid that people are not going to want to come out of their homes. They're going to mm. self-quarantine. And if the issue is people self-quarantining, then lower interest rates aren't going to make a difference. If people are afraid of walking on the street and getting sick, no matter how low interest rates are, they're not going to come out. So I think the Fed needs to be very careful to think about exactly what they're solving for and what they think their rate actions are going to do. What should the Fed be doing even apart from the coronavirus? Apart from the coronavirus, my own view is that interest rates are too low. As I said before, 10-year notes are a 130 yield. Um, the CPI is 100 basis points higher. Uh, in the old days, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people got to find benefit pensions. Today, they've got to find contribution uh, pensions. So they're saving for their retirement. When we used to have 200 basis points of real return, you had the magic of compound interest working for the saver. So they'd have a lot more money when they retired because they, they were able to earn 200 basis points over the inflation rate for many years. Today, when you can't even earn the inflation rate, that means uh, savers have to save dollar for dollar for their retirement. And what that means is that instead of retiring at 63, 65, 67, they're going to have to wait to 75 or 80 in order to, to retire. And that is going to be quite a shock to a lot of younger workers. And yet, Michelle, if anything, mm. I think what we've seen is savings rates go up, yeah. actually, as the rates have come down. Yeah. People save more and more and more. There was a time we were worried about capital formation yeah. and not having enough savings as a country to yep. invest. Now it looks like there's plenty of money to invest. It's not clear we have enough things to invest in. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason you can make the argument that the savings rate has gone up is that you need to just put more dollars away in order to get the same return because, to Jim's point, interest rates are so low. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know... Certainly, you've seen distortions in the economy and markets as a result of central bank policy. Some of those distortions are intentional, right? The, the way that monetary policy works when you're so close to zero lower bound and you've expanded your balance sheet so much is by forcing investors into other asset classes to take on risk. Um, and in theory, that creates wealth and then that bleeds more, you know, into the broader economy. Um, but that also means that it, 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 it could change behavior in a way that maybe is damaging and maybe it does have these consequences down the line that we just don't know about right now. Okay, our contributors will be staying with us. Next, we'll get a second opinion from Claudia Sam, Washington Center for Equitable Growth Director of Macroeconomic Policy. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. 
This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We convene now our Wall Street Week roundtable of James Tisch, CEO of Lowe's, and Michelle Meyer, head of U.S. economics for Bank of America Securities. Well, central bankers may be standing pat in the face of the coronavirus, but should they be? And for that matter, should fiscal authorities be stepping up to the plate when we need them right now? Here for a second opinion on the role of monetary policy and fiscal policy is Claudia Sam. She is the director of macroeconomic policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. She was previously at the Federal Reserve Board and is the author, of course, of The Psalm Rule, which she devised as an early recession indicator. Your claim to fame, among others, Claudia. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. So, so yeah, first, thank of all, you. first of all, first of all, start with the monetary part. We'll get to the fiscal part, but start with the monetary part. We've just been talking about what could central bankers, particularly the Federal Reserve, do in response to this coronavirus. Well, first, I think the response that they're taking in terms of paying a lot of attention, seeing what the effects are on the economy. That, that is the right step for them to be doing right now. I think they have a lot of tools to be able to do this. One, one of the areas, and I worked at, on this when I was at the Federal Reserve, was developing much more granular data on consumer spending in the United States. So very timely daily data available within three days and with a lot of geographic detail. So they can look at metro areas if and when any kind of an outbreak of the virus shows up and see what's happening in terms of spending, which would be one of the signs of an economic impact. That's sort of reassuring. So as a practical matter, yeah. do they have that on their dashboard right now? They can be looking in a given area if there's an outbreak and say, we can see within three days what's happening in spending? Yeah, these are data that the Federal Reserve has developed and has tested. So we use this, for example, looking at the effects of Hurricane Harvey and Irma in real time. And so the Federal Reserve has had these data, they know how to use them. And I think this is exactly the kind of application to be able to see if these are temporary, if they're more persistent effects, and if they're spreading in the economy. And, and if, they, if they see that an area of the country is slowed down for, because of the coronavirus, what specifically can the Fed do to, to try to counter that? Well, I think the, the first tool they have is to ease and lower the federal funds rate, lower interest rates. And they do have room to do that at this point. Uh, so I think, I think that's the next obvious step. There are definite questions if this becomes a much more severe economic event, which I think at this point we have... Nothing to say that's going to happen. That's something we need to be on the watch for. Uh, if, if, say, this were to turn into something that's much more widespread in terms of a economic contraction, then I think we're back to the debate of whether the Fed is ready for the next recession. And, and there I am much less sanguine about the tools that they have. And Claudia, do you think that the Fed would want to wait to see greater evidence in the hard data? So statistics like job creation or for you, you've clearly highlighted the importance of the unemployment rate in terms of that starting to turn or maybe even more leading would be initial jobless claims to see if companies are actually changing their investment in labor. Or can they rely on some of these regional pockets as a subset of what might come on a national basis and want to get ahead of that? Right. So I think they're going to be watching economic impacts, whether that's in consumer spending, in the employment numbers. They're obviously paying attention to what's happening in financial markets this week. So that, that can, financial conditions can have their own feed through the economy, and the Federal Reserve would take those seriously. And that could be a game changer in terms of what they do next. 
So regardless of whether they're seeing it right now in the spending data, I think that that raises the possibility more that they're starting to think seriously about a rate cut. So would you would you call would you consider this to be the Powell put that uh, when when the Fed sees uh, stock prices go down ten percent, they say, "Oh my God, we've got to cut interest rates." So I wouldn't ascribe this necessarily to Powell. We've seen other examples where financial markets get into a wobbly place and the Fed steps in and cuts rates. So there are examples from early 2016, there are examples from last year, and that can be a very effective way to short circuit some of the pessimism, the kind of downward spiral that can get going in financial markets. There aren't big costs to the economy if the Fed does that, and in the past it has proved successful. Claudia, what if we need more than the Fed? What if we need more than monetary policy? Talk to us about fiscal policy, because you've talked a lot about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I firmly believe, and there's a lot more conversation in the economic policy and in the academic community, that fiscal policy needs to be ready to step up at any point that we have a widespread contraction economic activity. The Fed is going to act. They need to act. They have real constraints on what they can do, or at least how effective it can do. So interest rates are very low. That is likely not what's holding back spending. And that would be true also in a recession. So the Fed needs to do what it knows how to do. And federal government, state and local governments, they have an important role to play too. And is that basically getting money into people's pockets? So I think the most important thing is that fiscal policy moves fast. So any kind of support to the economy, if it comes early, it has the chance to make the recession or whatever contraction is happening in the economy to make it shorter and less severe. And it is so important to take that opportunity as soon as the recession starts to act. And there's a lot of tools that they can get money out to people, to businesses, to state governments. So, Claudia, I know one of the things that you like to look at in your your research more broadly is the micro story. Right, not just the macro picture, but what can you glean from the the, the micro? Um, and would you make the case that on the fiscal side, they actually can be more micro? That maybe monetary policy is too blunt of an instrument to address um, some of some of the challenges of the economy, particularly one like this. That that fiscal policy um, can be more targeted. Um, and 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 specifically today with the coronavirus, how would you maybe see that playing out? Yeah, so I completely agree that fiscal policy has the ability to be targeted. And I think that is really the application that I would think about with the coronavirus. It makes a lot of sense to get financial support to individuals who end up being infected with the virus, aren't able to go to work. They're the ones that need help. And if you think about it, the federal government, if there is a natural disaster emergency area declared, they get money to individuals whose homes were destroyed. It makes sense that you should give money and support to the people who are directly affected, and the government knows how to do that. The Fed does not have those kind of tools. They have, as you said, a much blunter instrument. They have ways to affect the economy as a whole. And frankly, there is no guarantee what they do would actually help the people with the virus. Claudia, you said you have to do it fast. I don't normally think about Congress and fast in the same (laughs) sentence. Forgive me. You're in Washington. You know the way the place works. Is this realistic? 
So with a policy change, with a change in mindset, so the work that I have done and several other colleagues is to think about how could we make fiscal policy automatic? How could we make it move fast? Now, we have an excellent opportunity because right now we are not in a recession. A recession is not on the horizon, in my opinion. And now is the time that Congress can sit down, draft legislation, come up with a plan, and get it agreed to make a commitment, build up the infrastructure, and so when that recession hits, fiscal policy can move out the door. Would you agree with that, Jim? Would you favor that? I'm in favor of it, but there's nothing that I've seen that leads me to believe that there's going to be cooperation mm. in Congress and that they can get anything done quickly, especially now for, for the next uh, eight months as we're going into presidential election season. I personally had, had been hopeful that with this coronavirus thing that, that you would see the the parties come together, that the, mm. the political bickering would, would uh, sort of come to a standstill, and I haven't seen any evidence of that. We didn't see it this week. If anything, we saw the reverse. Yes. Yeah. Started to make it a political football, basically, about how much money is being appropriated and whether it's fast enough and the right people, things like that. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And uh, I would add one point to that, and... Well, I agree with you. It is a very optimistic, overly optimistic scenario to think this legislation would pass this year. But there is a real benefit for legislation being drafted, brought to the House, brought to the Senate, because if nothing else, that creates a conversation. It lets the details be hammered out. And that text, that legislation is sitting there. And when we get into a recession, I think that is a time where you see bi bipartisan support to fight back and help people. So there could be benefits. I think there really are benefits from the preparation we could be doing right now. And it could be that other disruptions, like the coronavirus, light a fire under Congress people, light a fire under policymakers, and get them started planning and drafting legislation. It's a good wish. There's no question about that. Okay. Thank you so much, Claudia. That's Claudia Sam of the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. And if you missed an episode of Bloomberg Wall Street Week, full episodes are now available on YouTube, the Bloomberg Terminal, and Bloomberg.com. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.